welcome to Switchbacks, a National Parks podcast. In 2015, we quit our jobs to visit all of the U.S. national parks in one year, and ever since, we have been obsessed with all things National Park Service. This is week four of a 62-week tour of virtually revisiting a new national park each week through a podcast episode and in-depth guide on switchbackkids.com. We hope you learn something new and get inspired because the national parks are for everyone. Today we're going back to the late 1800s with the establishment of Mount Rainier National Park. Cole. Elizabeth. Did you know that Mount Rainier was the first national park to be created from an already established national forest? I did not. That is fascinating. (laughs) Super fascinating. So John Muir led, which he led a lot of national park pushes, but uh, back in the day, but he led this one to create the Pacific to help protect Mount Rainier after he and a group of of, uh, explorers climbed, summited it. He kind of got inspired and uh, led the push to create this uh, forest reserve around Mount Rainier. And we'll get into that climbing Mount Rainier in a bit, but uh, that is all the more impressive giving the equipment and yeah, knowledge. Yeah, he probably didn't have a guide. Yeah, of the <laughs> late 1800s. So once again, he is he impresses me. Um, yeah, but it is Mount Rainier week, so we are talking about that beautiful park in the Pacific Northwest. Which impresses me even more. So... Uh, what is Mount Rainier most known for? Let's get into the overview. Uh, of, clo- of course, the national park is known for the mountain, Mount Rainier. Uh, it's also called Tahoma, Tacoma. Uh, it's the tallest point in the Cascade Range. It's the most glaciated peak in the contiguous U.S. I, actually, that's another fun fact, I think. Would not have guessed it. Uh, and 34, 35 square miles of glaciers and snowfields. Uh, Carbon Glacier is the largest glacier by volume in the contiguous United States. Again, very fun, very fun fact. And <laughs> just rolling with the fun. Emmons facts. Glacier. I mean, everything's fun if you have the right mindset, right? Um, Emmons Glacier is the largest glacier by area. And it's not. It is mostly about the mountain, but it is. There are other parts of the park that are amazing besides just the mountain. So there are all of these meadows with uh, with wildflowers after wildflowers after wildflowers. Um, the park had a lot of historic, uh, you know, lodges and not a lot, but uh, a couple of interesting historic visitor facilities and waterfalls and old growth forests and all, all sorts of interesting things too. Yeah, as you can imagine, all of that snowpack and glaciers have to be feeding some pretty incredible waterfalls. So, um, also most known for climbing, of course, the, as we've talked about, there are 10,000 attempts per year with approximately 50% making it to the summit. So 50% not, which is intimidating. Yeah. So just a quick history of the area, um, the, you know, there's evidence that humans have lived in the area for about 9,000 years and then early, Europeans started exploring the area, such as George Vancouver. He's the one who actually renamed because it the mountain was known as 
Tacoma or Tahoma, slight variations, which means, quote, the source of nourishment from the many streams coming from the slopes, which I think is very precise, <laughs> very descriptive. Yes. Um, and Spot now it's on. called Mount Rainier because George Vancouver named it after his friend. Not as descriptive. Yeah. Which is a little random, in my opinion. Kind of like a Denali situation. Yeah. It used to be called Mount McKinley. When... And I think there is a current push to rename the mountain, you know, give it back its original name. We'll see. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, like we said, John Muir led the the more modern push to protect Mount Rainier. Um and during the early years, park administrators actually focused on attracting new visitors at like a really frenzied pace. They were trying to get just as many people as possible, sacrificing some of the protection of natural resources. Um, so yeah, there were it, all sorts of hotels springing up, and they were doing they were uh, chaotically building all these roads. They were the first. Now it was the first national park, I think, to allow cars. Wow. To come in, um, how and, progressive? Yeah, and then of, and then that kind of changed with the creation of the NPS in 1916. That brought some more consistent like pre- preservation, management, interpretive programs, and some better infrastructure. And the rest is history. <laughs> so let's <Somewhat. laughs> let's get into how to visit the park. Then, um, first of all, when to visit. There are definite seasonal considerations, as with any mountain park, and Mount Rainier in particular has quite the short visiting season. July and August are by far the busiest with long wait times at the entrances. Winter and spring, of course, lower crowds, more winter sports activity options like snowshoes, um, but many roads and campgrounds are closed, Tire chains are required. Uh, let me emphasize required because we had that experience on our trip. Yep. We had to buy snow chains because we were at the very end when we visited it um, in April of the snow chains required season. But if you get caught without them, you can get you know a, a fine. And we wanted to be you know, on our best behavior. Um, anyway, fall, lower crowds... Worse weather. You know, a little unpredictable. You never know. You but, probably still need those tire chains, <laughs> depending yeah. on when you visit. But you can have a good visit into October, I would say, before those heavy snows start to uh, fall. Yeah, so as far as getting to the park, logistically, um, you've got Seattle as, a, as a, an awesome, giant gateway city uh, that feeds several national parks, including Mount Rainier. And it's about two hours or so or less from the Seattle airport. You'll probably want to rent a car because there is no public transportation option into the park. There's no park shuttle or anything like that. Um, you could you could probably hire a private shuttle or a private tour if you were interested in that. But a rental car is going to give you that flexibility to get to different trailheads and do the scenic drive. And then there are actually a number of entrances to the park. So if you think about, how, if you can visualize it in your mind, the park is really a pretty solid square um, with Mount Rainier smack dab in the middle of it, the real focal point of the park. Now there are entrances, um, actually five of them from uh, each corner of the square, 
and also the western, the eastern side. Um, so some of those entrances are bigger than others. Probably the main ones are coming from you know the the southwest corner mm-hmm. um, into Longmire. And then also if you want to go to like Sunrise, which is popular in the um, summer season, that's the northeast entrance. So you have a number of different options uh, to get in. And obviously you should figure out what is open at the uh, time Yeah, you're especially going. if you're visiting in the off season because the roads will not connect during uh, a good amount of the year um, from the like the main, the southwest, like we just said, the southwest to the northeast area, those entrances will, won't connect um, throughout a lot of the year. So just double check your route and your timing. And Seattle is uh, obviously a great gateway city itself with lots of amenities and other national parks. So that is worth mentioning that you can make Mount Rainier a part of a larger, amazing trip. And you can visit places like Olympic National Park, uh, which was one of our favorites on our trip. Uh, It's even farther, you know, west across the Puget Sound from Seattle. and then North Cascades and National Park and Ross Lake National Recreation Area, which is um, you know basically combined areas, and then even Klondike Gold Rush, the Seattle unit. The Klondike Gold Rush is a fun national park unit because uh, there's an office and a museum in downtown Seattle, but the main part of it, the real, you know, the place that most people think of is in Skagway, Alaska, but the two are connected because so many people made the trip from Seattle and embarked to go to Alaska. And the museum in Seattle is really good. Yes. It's a great museum. Yeah. We've been to both units actually and, and uh, got to learn about the gold rush from the beginning to the end. Right. And then also on our list still is to visit San Juan Island National Historical Park. So You've got some really good NPS units um, in and around the Seattle area, for sure. So if you're going to stay closer to the park, so not in Seattle and want to make it a multi-day trip, um, you've got some options for staying inside the park. There are two national park lodges, three drive-in campgrounds, plus a plethora of backcountry campgrounds. 18, actually. Wow. Yeah, they're by permit only. Yeah. That's your inside the park options. Um, And then, of course, right outside the park in some of those littler, smaller gateway cities, you've got a lot of private hotels, campgrounds, Airbnbs, and even some dispersed camping in the National Forest. Yeah. So that really covers, Elizabeth, uh, the overview and how to visit the park. How about we get into our trip and share briefly what we did when we went in April 2016? Yeah, and this is part of why I feel like it's hard for us to speak to Mount Rainier <laughs> versus some of the other parks we went to because we really felt like there we left with a lot of unfinished business, I think. So we visited in April 2016. We spent four days in the park. It was cloudy for about three days of those four days. We had one really, really good, great day. Um, but we, correct me if I'm wrong, but we camped one night outside the park in the National Forest mm-hmm. in Gifford, Pinchot National National Forest, 
And then we spent one night. That was uh, dispersed camping for free. And then we spent one night at a private campground. I believe it was the the campground called Rocky Point. Right. On a lake. Yeah, and that's because no camping was open in the park itself. Correct. And that was kind of the trend because a lot of areas of the park were inaccessible. A lot of the trails were snowed in. Um, So we did what we could by enjoying different angles of Mount Rainier <laughs> on our, on sunny days. And we also did some pretty good lower elevation hiking plus a scenic drive. Yeah, really all from that south uh, western corner where you go into Longmire, Longmire Visitor Center. You, uh, experience, you can experience the Paradise area. Um, we did a scenic drive to the Paradise parking lot. That was as far as the road that goes kind of along the south of Rainier and then up to the west, the western, like the curve up um, on the western side was closed. So we scrambled around in the snow once we got to Paradise, um, met a guide who was really cool when we were just you know hiking around. He used to, or I think still did, guide people uh-huh. you know, up to the top of Mount Rainier and had done you know, hundreds of trips, seen so much. Really cool. He's, he t- told us about a group that he led, a, he led a, a group of blind climbers. Oh yeah, up to the summit, which just sounds amazing too. So he was—he definitely had some great stories. Um, yeah, he was our person of the parks. If you all are uh, big fans of the blog, you'll remember <laughs> we did a people of the park series where we profiled people in each park. So uh, check that out if you're interested. Yeah, and then lower in the Longmire area, we did two good trails. We hiked the Rampart Ridge Trail, which was four and a half miles in a, in a loop sort of situation. Um, and that we got like semi views of Rainier. Um, so if it's a nice day, you'd get great views. And then we also did a trail called, it was Tahoma Creek Trail to the suspension bridge. Yep. That was a long trail. It was also unmaintained. So it was quite torn up, um, but definitely cool with ending at the, the Wonderland Trail where it crosses the suspension bridge. Yep. And we saw people leaving from Longmire, you know, getting ready to do their climbs of Mount Rainier during the winter and stuff. So you, if you, you know, are prepared and really want to be adventurous, the the winter season or the spring season in our instance doesn't have to stop you at all. Yeah, we did. We did hang out in the wilderness permit office for a little bit, looking at the map of Rainier and asking questions. And I remember a few different climbers came in and with varying levels of experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of them was surprised that you even needed any special equipment or that it took you know oh it takes three days to get up okay (laughs) you could tell it was just a variety of of of, uh questions right try not to be those people uh listen to this (laughs) podcast before you go (laughs) right okay so moving on to Activities, And we're going to try to ex- obviously extend this beyond what we were able to do uh, based on what we know that other people have done and are Research, great yeah. things. Yeah. So first of all, must-sees. Um, you got to see Rainier from various angles. Uh, also, you got to, well, you got to just see it in general. Like we said, it's cloudy. Um, a lot of the time. So you got to give yourself enough time at Rainier at the park to be able to see 
the mountain. Um, the more days you have, the more chances you'll get. So what, and one thing I would really recommend is, you know, enter from maybe the, the Northeast and, uh, sorry, the Southwest and travel to the Northeast. And you can see the different views of the mountain from like a really low elevation at uh, Longmire and Paradise. And then you get up all the way to Sunrise and that would be a for sure don't miss sunrise it's the highest point that you can drive to and see rainier um, it usually opens late june there are great wildflowers there and there's an amazing you know view of the mountain um i even though we can't speak to it yeah but <laughs> we one, we didn't do it but you must do it one um short trail even from sunrise that I've heard recommended is uh, along sourdough ridge it's one to one and a half miles and is a is a small loop Um, so definitely you can check that out another thing that's very high on my list is seeing the wildflowers and this is tricky because it also coincides with the busiest season um, of mid to late July through August which is when the wildflowers usually peak um and the Skyline Trail, is that a good place to see the wildflowers, Cole? Yeah, well, yes, absolutely, because Paradise is, um, you know, you don't really have to go far to see amazing wildflowers in Rainier. It's really known for it. Um, and Paradise area is great for wildflowers in that lower elevation uh, and the meadows, the meadows they have around it. Specifically, Skyline Trail is a five-mile loop that can get you the best of paradise and some amazing uh, wildflower meadows. And then we're always going to plug learning about the park, I think, especially in parks like this that are more hiking-centric. A lot of people tend to blow past the visitor center, blow past the rangers, Um, but we are big proponents of watching the park movie, uh, attending a ranger program, doing the junior ranger program, doing something to where you are learning why this park was established, why it's important beyond that it's just really pretty to look at. Um, So that's something that we're always going to recommend too, as a must do. Okay, and what are the listeners' favorites that we heard? Yeah, so quickly we'll go through this list, but people submitted that they loved Silver Falls Loop Trail, which was, quote, cool and unexpected. Um, hiking the paradise area in the fall, somebody said, Mm. which I think sounds lovely. Snowshoeing in the winter out of paradise. Meeting a mountaineer who had just summited Rainier, which is similar to our experience. And then visiting, someone said visiting the park in January because of how the snow covered the trees and the lack of crowds. Yeah. Awesome. So many different experiences you can have in one park. Um, And because there are so many experiences, because it's a popular park, because it has a short visiting season, you might want to learn about some of the secrets to getting the most out of the park or seeing those off the beaten path areas. So what are some secrets? Yeah, first secret for you, um, go into, try to get to the uh, northwest corner of the park. There are two Uh, roads that go into the northwest corner 
one leads you to the Carbon River entrance, and that one, um, there's a road, good road that takes you all the way to the very start of the park, and then you can bike five miles along old Carbon River Road that's been washed out since early 2000s to the trailheads. So that can be, you know, it's a, a very remote area in general, but that um, bike along the first five miles or so could be a really cool way to um, get to those trailheads and see some amazing uh, angles of Rainier most people don't get. And the second north west road is the one um, it's road 165 and it ends at Mowich Lake and that um, that one gets you to a really uh, what I've heard is an amazing hike to a place called Spray Park it's a six mile out and back and it gives you some subalpine and alpine ecosystems just really good diversity of um of like environments. So the six mile out and back to Spray Park from Moich Lake. And so Northwest corner, check it out. And then also number two, the Grove of Patriarchs is something that, you know, I think most visitors would just pass right by. This is if you're entering in the South East corner of the park It's right inside the park if you come in that entrance. And it's really, you know, you think of the mountain, of course, when you go to the park. But Mount Rainier has incredible old-growth forest as well. And this particular uh, uh, trail called the Grove of Patriarchs has some amazing hemlocks, um, cedars, Douglas firs, just huge trees because they're so old and um, it can give you just a really different feel uh, for for Mount Rainier. And then the last one that I'll mention is, you know, we talked about wildflowers. We talked about going in late July to early August is the best time for that. Um, we've talked about some places that are on the beaten path for wildflowers, but a really good, you know, secret number three place for wildflowers is Grand Park. And this one's a little hard to get to. Um, so the long approach would be starting from sunrise. You could go, you know, nine miles, um, I believe out and back for, um, to get to this, the biggest meadow in the park or one of the biggest meadows in the park and just uh, you know the the reviews of this hike were amazing so um it, and one of the things that makes it so good is that it, it because the snow melts later the um early and late wildflowers mix together in this gigantic meadow so you can get to grand park from sunrise through a nine mile hike or if you have an like a four by four vehicle, uh, you could possibly get there uh, from Forest Service Road number seventy three, uh, which is also called Huckleberry Creek Road, and y- you can look up that route yourself. But that's another option that gets you a little shorter hike. Um, but that's that's secret number three is wildflowers at Grand Park.
Yeah, all sorts of good secrets. That sounds that sounds fun. So as far as families visiting the park, we have a few. We found a few specific things. There is a junior ranger program, of course, um, through the through the national park. On their website, though, they have a ton of really cool uh, information for students and for kids of all ages, um, kind of sorted in a very kid-friendly way about animals, volcanoes, wildflowers, all sorts of different aspects of the park, and even some videos that that rangers have created. Um, You can also complete a junior scientist program, which is another thing that I believe Yellowstone had that program too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you found a good hike that was supposed to be awesome for families called Sourdough Ridge right. in the Sunrise area. Right. I mentioned that uh, briefly earlier, but again, Sourdough Ridge hike from Sunrise is a one to one and a half mile hike. It's really quite flat, um, but because it's already at that high elevation of Sunrise gives you some amazing views, um, and it was really recommended for families. Awesome. So what's a big adventure at Mount Rainier? There are a few. Yeah. And uh, I've had my eyes on uh, these for a while. I've I've done some research into these even before this podcast. So the first one is the Wonderland Trail. And this is one of the most famous trails in NPS. Um, It's 93 miles in uh, circumnavigating Mount Rainier. So it goes all the way around the mountain. The, um, you know, it takes maybe six to nine days, depending on how fast you hike. And there are 21 different campsites you can choose from. Uh, there are 18 backcountry, three uh, front country campsites, and those range from 2,600 elevation to 6,200 feet elevation. So you, during this trail, you get a huge uh, variation of um, elevation, and you actually go through climbs of 23,000 feet uh, of total elevation gain. So it's, it's a big backpacking hike, and the coolest thing about it is you're seeing... Uh, Mount Rainier from literally all the angles, and you're also going through a super diverse collection of ecosystems from the temperate rainforest to the subalpine meadows to the alpine tundra. Um, And the best time to go, you can go from July to early October usually, and I've heard that mid-September is best. Um, And the final note on permitting it's really popular hike, so permits are hard to get. 70% of permits are available online with the application window opening between March 15th and March 31st. So then they do a lottery after that closes. And then 30% are first come, first serve. So the second big adventure thing that I would absolutely love to do at some point is climbing Rainier. We mentioned lots of people attempt to climb it. 50% get there. Um, It's not something that should be undertaken lightly at all. 
there are 40% of people do it through a guide, 60% do it with friends who are, you know, some where somebody's really experienced, but, um, you know, it does include snow climbing. It, it, you have to have mountaineering gear, crampons, and ice axe. Um, and it, it, again, just if you're thinking about it, maybe consider a guide. That might be what I would do because, um, you know, the, these three and a half to four day trips are between 1100 to $2,000 uh, for the tour. Which actually seems somewhat reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and you know I don't know any mountaineers personally or or friends with mountaineering experience, so that might be the route I would go. But um, I definitely don't want to end up uh, one of those one hundred lives that have been lost since the late eighteen hundreds, and that actually seems like a low number, but uh, that's the number I saw. Um, so I guess the the note I'll end on is is respect the mountain and. Do your research beforehand if you want to climb Mount Rainier, which you should. <laughs> you can be one of the 10,000 people who try it every year, right? 50-50. Right. Okay, so moving into the Q&A section, we just had a couple of questions that were asked through our Instagram, which you can do about future parks if you'd like. Um, the first question, what are some activities for the days when the mountain is covered in a cloud, <laughs> which we had experience with? Yeah, what do you think? So we really liked, this is this is a situation that is very likely to happen, I think, depending on when you visit. So they're short, during their short visiting season, they have amazing weather. But any a lot of times outside of that season, it's less than ideal. Um, so for seeing Rainier. So remember that the park is more than the mountain. There's wildflowers, there's waterfalls there are uh, there's the park museum there's these amazing lower elevation hikes yeah like the grove of patriarchs the the big forests and also other mountains you can get to viewpoints of other mountains in the park um and also a viewing out of the park i was surprised when we went how we were in the park, but then looking out mostly to the south, we saw, you know, amazing ranges of mountains. So, um, and it's just a mountain environment. So you have really, there's, we saw great wildlife. We saw just that, you know, just hiking in the mountains just has that appeal by itself, regardless of, of how cloudy it is. Yep. So don't despair if it's cloudy. Yes. And then uh, one more question for specific hiking recommendations. Again, this is not based on our own experience necessarily, um, but there are 260 miles of maintained trails in the park. So some trails we've heard are great. I think we mentioned the Skyline Trail in the Paradise area. Also heard the Mount Fremont Lookout Trail is amazing in the Sunrise area. And then the Comet and Christine Falls Trail near Longmire is a 4.3 mile out and back trail that we've heard is really good. Yeah, I've heard Comet is, you know, some people call it the best in in uh, waterfall in the park, but uh, stiff, stiff, comp- stiff comp- competition. Definitely. Okay, so ending with one thing to think about. Yeah, I love this section. Um, so for Mount Rainier, 
The thing to think about is about three weeks ago, there was a news story that they had identified wolverines returning to Mount Rainier after National Park after a hundred years of being gone. And this is really exciting for the scientists there, especially, but just, you know, the park and animal lovers in general. Um, there, they saw three wolverines, a mom named Joni and her two kits, the, the, you know, the little ones. And I didn't know much about wolverines, but I, I read up on them a little bit through this story. And they're really solitary creatures who require a lot of room to roam. And it's so much room that in like a 600 square mile area, there might only be an estimated six wolverines. So that could be 100 <laughs> square miles each. Um, also, there's not a lot of these animals, period. There's an estimated 300 to 1,000 wolverines living in the lower 48 states. And that's a huge range because they're such um, solitary creatures that are so shy and don't want anything to do with humans. So we really you know, don't see them much at all. You don't expect to see any wolverines when you go to Mount Rainier. Um, but you know, the last cool thing I'll mention about wolverines getting to Mount Rainier is that um, this means they are ex really extending their range southward and they used to be you know into areas of California and Utah even so they used to range a lot farther south but um, since their habitat has shrunk so much they uh, it's a huge win to have them getting from the North Cascades down to the South Cascades which include Mount Rainier and that means they actually have to cross Interstate 90 to begin recolonizing these south cascades so that's just, very impressive yeah yeah <laughs> for just, a wolverine just a good like hopeful story that and, and you hear this every now and then with animals in the national parks that they're coming back sometimes it's because we've introduced them but in this instance it's even better because they've done it on their own um so go wolverines <laughs> you know do your thing Get some more little baby wolverines out there, and maybe a few of you lucky ones will will spy them sometime. Absolutely. that's I love that story. So thank you guys for joining us as we revisited the U.S.'s fourth national park, Mount Rainier. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear from you on our website, switchbackkids.com, or on our social media at switchbackkids. Yeah, tell us what you liked and what you want more of on our social media and send us your questions for future parks for sure. And next week, we'll be moving slightly south along the West Coast to visit the fifth national park, Crater Lake. Until then, switchbacks, switchbacks out. out.